guys did a good job. You just sang the whole entire Christmas story on that last song. And um, I tease a little bit each year. There's no other time of year where the world sings about our Savior and doesn't even fully realize it. You go in stores and restaurants right now and there's Christmas music playing. Some of it is um, the irritating, repetitive worst Christmas songs of the year kind of songs, but every now and then they'll mix in one of those Christmas carols, and it's uh, beautiful to hear and sometimes gives the opportunity to even uh, speak to somebody about the Lord or speak to somebody about your faith in Christ and what uh, this season represents for us, not just a story or a birth, but it is God with us, the fact that God himself became man, was made flesh for us, took upon our form, and did what we cannot do for ourselves in bringing salvation, and we're thankful for that. Turn, if you would, to the book of Habakkuk tonight, the book of Habakkuk again, and we have been here for, this is our third week, and Lord willing, we're going to finish our study tonight, and if you would have told me we were going to do the book of Habakkuk, it's not a long book, but if you just said we're going to do the whole book in three weeks, and you're going to actually get it done I would have felt very proud of myself uh, three weeks ago. And that's our target tonight. That's what we're going to try to do. And so if you would, find your place in the book of Habakkuk. If you have your uh, sheet there, your note sheet, you can take a look at that on the inside. We'll be there in just a moment. If you're watching online, those notes are available online. Uh, You can pull them up on your phone or device. Just go to our Connect page and choose tonight's sermon notes. And you'll be able to um, follow along with us there as well. All right, Habakkuk, we're going to read chapter number three in just a moment, but just to sort of rehash um, and kind of remember what we've uh, been talking about. We said the book of Habakkuk, it's written by the prophet named Habakkuk. We said that uh, there is very little, really nothing else told about this particular man really in all of Scripture. It doesn't really reveal exactly who he is or his place in society or his life or anything about it is just simply God's word came to this man and there was a host of prophets throughout Israel's history that were never known they're not known in scripture that they sort of labored in relative anonymity in terms of history how history goes there's hundreds if not thousands of prophets throughout the years that we don't have all recorded in scripture but Habakkuk is one of those that we don't know much other than the word that God gave to him And we said that Habakkuk is in a unique point in Israel's history. And we said he is between the northern kingdom being taken captive in exile by Assyria and the southern kingdom, the rest of Israel, being taken captive by Babylon. And we said Habakkuk is writing before the Babylonian captivity comes. And we said that Habakkuk is looking around, and we read the first chapter a couple weeks ago, and we said it kind of can even echo our own thoughts and our own cry at times. And we said that Habakkuk looks around him and he sees the nation of Israel or the people of Israel living in Judah and in Jerusalem sort of in dismay. They are apathetic toward God. They are, uh, they they mistreat God's word and God's leaders and uh, those that are speaking God's word to them. Uh, They're chasing after idols. They're trying to make political alliances between Egypt and Babylon, they keep trying to choose which one is going to be stronger and side themselves with that. And then 
They always sort of make the wrong choice and one of those nations or the other sort of abuses them and goes back and forth and back and forth. And we know that Babylon eventually, historically, is going to be coming very soon. But Israel doesn't really know that and they don't know specifically what's coming. But Habakkuk looks around at the people of God and he sees what's going on with them. He sees the, uh, the, already, uh, the exile that's already being carried out. And he just, it leads him to ask some questions. And we saw in Habakkuk chapter 1, you saw in verses 2, 3, and 4, he asked the two real questions. He says, how long, how long do I have to cry out to you? How long do we have to pray? How long do we have to talk to you before you'll actually listen to our prayers? That's a, that's a deep question, one that we maybe would not always be willing to voice audibly in front of others to the Lord but one that we sometimes feel when the circumstances of our life sort of close in and we wonder, God, how long is it going to take for you to work in me, either personally or in my circumstance or in what life is bringing me? And then he asks, why? He says, how long are you going to wait and why are things the way that they are? How can you look at how bad things are and be okay with this? And we said that Habakkuk is looking at God's supposed, or in his mind, his view, God's inactivity, and he's looking at it as if God doesn't care, and God has abandoned and rejected them in a way. But in his heart, he knows that just cannot be true. And so he takes his request to the right person. He doesn't just complain, and he does not rebel, but rather he comes and he pours his heart out to God. We said that it kind of echoes even our time. We said Habakkuk's not a, it's not, it's not a Christmas study, and it's not even a, a book that gives a lot of direct prophecy about the Messiah himself. But it is a little bit of a Christmas or an Advent season study. We said in chapter number two, in part of God's answer, in verse number three, he tells him, he says, though, talking about deliverance, though that tarry, he says, wait for it. And we said we picture the Christmas season, the people of Israel and God's people, those that believed in Jehovah, waiting for his promised Messiah to come. And then eventually Jesus came. They had this season of Advent, this season of waiting for the coming Messiah. We look back and we see the Messiah, that he has already come, that he has lived a perfect life, that he has died on our behalf, and that he offers salvation through resurrected new life. And we look back to him. But we also, though we don't always recognize it, we also have our own moment of waiting now, don't we? Where we are not waiting for a Messiah to come the first time, we are waiting for the Messiah to come again. And it's not because of just a, a whim and a hope, it's what He has promised. In the same way that He promised Israel and God's people in the Old Testament, made a covenant with Adam and with Noah and with uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and then with David and his people he made this covenant I will send this one and he kept his promise now he has made a promise again to come for us and to make the world and to make the universe right to vanquish sin and defeat all of its remnant the death and the consequences of sin forever and now we're waiting on that and we said that in Habakkuk's day, God's people had been distracted from God's promise. We said that as Habakkuk was living, they, it was like because God had been inactive and because God hadn't 
visibly been working in them or audibly been giving them what they wanted, they became distracted by everything else in their world around them. And in our same society, in our lives today, we can be so distracted by everything around us and the world around us and everything that we perceive as going wrong or going bad in our own lives personally or in the community around us or in our region, our country, and in our world that is in turmoil. And we can look and ask the same question. How long, God, are you going to let things be like this? And why do we have to see this? Why is the world the way that it is? Why don't you do these things? And we say that in, in a way it is God's mercy and that he has brought and given us the light of the gospel. And though the world is dark, he gives us the same answer that he gave to Habakkuk. And that is, though it tarries, though it is delayed, God's plan is never late. And he says, you must wait for it. And the word wait there means to long for it, to want and desire it. And so as we come to the final chapter of Habakkuk in chapter 3, this is the prophet's response to God's word and God's answer. Remember God's first answer? He told him, Habakkuk said, why, how long and why are, what are you doing? And God says, well, you wouldn't even believe my plan if I told you. And I don't know if Habakkuk got excited or not, but it, the answer wasn't what he expected. In the rest of chapter 1, God tells Habakkuk, you, yes, you're right, God's people, you've turned away from me, you've turned aside, but I'm doing something to bring you back to myself. What am I doing? I'm raising up a nation that's far worse than you, that is evil, that is relentless, that is murderous, that does not have God in their hearts. And he's talking about Babylon. And I'm going to raise that up and I'm going to judge Israel with it. And remember Habakkuk's response is, why are you going to judge one evil nation with a more evil nation? That doesn't make sense. And then God responds to him and he says, I see all men's evil, my own people and the evil of others, and all sin will be judged. And it's the truth today as well, that all sin, God does not miss what's going on in our lives or the world around us. And all sin and evil will be rewarded and judged. But for the Christian, we know that God's wrath is poured out on Jesus Christ in our place and in our stead. And we carry that message of hope to the world. And God responds in this way in chapter 2. And now you have this final chapter. And it is, it's a prayer, a poem, a psalm. It's a song kind of all wrapped in one. Notice, if you would, in verse number 1. It says, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, and then there's this cool word, upon Shagayanoth. Now, you say, oh, you're going to tell us what this word means. I'm not going to tell you what it means, because we don't know exactly what it means. The only comparison that we have is a word used in Psalm 7, where David says the same thing. His psalm is prepared to be played upon this. The best we can assume, it's a word that has been lost, and we don't have an exact translation for it but it, it, it kind of gives the hint if you put the word parts together meaning kind of with song or uh with kind of gives the idea of something peppy <laughs> you know with 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 force with excitement sing this and you're going to see that as we walk through and i think that that's a good explanation of what this is saying he's saying this is a, a prayer that i'm praying that that can be sung on behalf of the Lord, to, to the Lord, on behalf of God's people. The very last verse, the very last phrase, he says, to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. Chief singer literally means the 
the one who leads the rest of the singers, kind of the choir master, if you would. And so it's very clear that he's saying this is a prayer, but this is meant to be more than that. This is meant to be, don't miss this, worship. All right, so watch what happens. Habakkuk is questioning God about his circumstance. How long and why is life the way that it is? God's response is, he doesn't, you ever notice, he doesn't answer Habakkuk's question directly. He doesn't give him an exact verbatim answer. Why? One, because God is not required to explain himself to anyone. And God doesn't do that here. He doesn't try to justify his actions as though he may need to defend himself if he is wrong or right. God's nature is assumed. He is righteous and holy. And so when he responds to Habakkuk, rather than give Habakkuk why he's done everything he's done, he's giving him his plan and displaying his own character and nature. And so what is Habakkuk's response? That's what keeps happening. And this is the third time Habakkuk is going to speak. So the first time he speaks, he says, why and how long? Second time he speaks, he says, are you really sure about this, God? Because they're really bad people. I don't think you know how bad they are. God responds again. And this time, Habakkuk's heart has changed. And notice, he worships the Lord. Now, what changed in Habakkuk's life and circumstance that brought him from questioning and even a moment of doubt, you could call it, to worship? Nothing changed. Nothing has changed. God's plan is still to judge Israel. Babylon is still coming. God's people that Habakkuk is ministering to are still apathetic. So how does he move from doubt to worship? God teaches him through his word to him, and God meets with him personally. The same is true today. How are we moved from moments of apathy and doubt about what God is doing to worshiping him? It is not by him guaranteeing a change of our circumstance, and it is not by him relieving all the problems of our life. The reward, or the, excuse me, the change is the response that God has given to us and the work that he does in us personally. And when God speaks and works, his people worship. So with that as the setting, and we see that that is significant, that even though Habakkuk felt uncertainty, pain, distress, and sadness, he worshiped God because he realized God's character and worth go far above his own feelings. And so let's look, if you would, at verse number two. He says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath. Remember mercy. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah, which simply means take a break here and think on this. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. And his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand and there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence and burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered, and the perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? 
Was thy wrath against the sea thou didst ride, that thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? Thy bow was made quite naked according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word, Selah. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. And o- the overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went. And at the, hiding, at, at, and at the shining of thy glittering spear, thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the, <clears throat> out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation uh, unto the neck, Selah. Thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses, through the heap of great waters. And when I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive tree shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hind's feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, give us in these few minutes understanding of your word and clarity of mind. May your spirit be evidently working in us, and may you bring us to this response of rejoicing as well tonight, regardless of the world around us or our circumstance, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, what in the world was that, was that all about? Like, what, was, what did Habakkuk just, that sounds, I don't know about you, that sounds like no prayer I have ever prayed to the Lord. Um, nothing like anything that I have prayed. So what is it that Habakkuk is speaking? Aren't you glad, as we study God's Word here, typically we're trying to go verse by verse through books of the Bible, sections of Scripture, and I think there's a good reason for that discipline, because if not, there's a lot of my life that I would never come back to the book of Habakkuk on a regular basis for, unless God reveals and gives us some understanding. And as we look to this, we see that Habakkuk is not struggling with a belief in God's existence, but rather he is questioning God's presence. He's asked how long and he's asked why. That's how he started this writing or this book. He doesn't get that specific reply, but he does come to understand God's character and nature. And when he does, it brings him, moves him to praise and petition. And so let's look at it tonight and just break it down into three distinct parts and then we'll be done with this book. I don't want us to get lost in this. As you first read it, 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 it has a, a revelation kind of feel almost, doesn't it? Because it's talking about God coming on waters and 
horns in his hand and there's thundering and lightning and he's dispersing and driving out the nations. I mean, it has this, this end times kind of feel. But in actuality, it is simply, it's Habakkuk looking back at what God has done. He voices it, and we'll say it this way, he voices it in very poetic language. But if we just slow down for a moment and, and, and walk through it, very simply, this is what Habakkuk is doing in the final chapter. He has heard God speak to him, and God says, I have not changed. My plan is no different. There is nothing that is outside of my control, regardless of what you see. And when Habakkuk is moved in his heart and life, and he's convinced of that, he worships, and he worships by making first a request to the Lord, but then by remembering, very simply remembering what God has done in the life and in the people of his children and of Israel. And then he makes this declaration that he's going to rejoice. And so let's look at that very quickly tonight. If you would, first notice his request, and it's a beautiful request. Now remember, Habakkuk's just been told things, summarizing the Lord's words to Habakkuk, things are not going to get better for you. Things are not going to get better for Israel at least right away. Babylon's coming, and it's going to be bad. That's what he tells Habakkuk. And notice that when Habakkuk hears this, and he comes to understand God's plan, but knows that God is in control, Habakkuk does not argue with God about his plan. And he doesn't try to convince God that his plan is wrong. Notice what he does in verse 2. O Lord, I have heard thy speech. He says, I've heard about you, literally your fame and I was afraid. He says, I stood, I stand in awe when I hear you speak. And so, here's the request. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember mercy. It's, it's a beautiful request, because here's what, here's what Habakkuk asks God to do. He says, God, revive, meaning quicken, renew, make alive your work and what work is he talking about? The work that God does in his people. And so he's saying, God, I get it. You're in control. You're going to judge our sin that we have lived for hundreds of years. You're going to judge that. And you're going to do it in righteousness. But God, I'm asking you to do a work in your people's hearts. But notice the next phrase, in the middle of those years. In the midst of the trouble, in the middle of the problems, while we're in exile in Babylon, work in our hearts. That's what Habakkuk says. And it is a beautiful picture of what we as Christians, waiting for the ultimate return of Jesus, waiting for God to make the universe right again, to, to banish all sin, to bind Satan, to destroy death forever. While we wait for that, because we know that in that moment, we're going to, it says we're going to be like him because we're going to see him. We're going to see him as he is. We're going to behold the very presence of God. It will be amazing. But if we're Habakkuk tonight, here's our prayer. God, while we're waiting, please still work in us. God, while, while the world still turns in trouble and turmoil and while we don't understand why wicked men succeed and why evil seems to run rampant, 
under your control. And God, we don't understand that. But our request is not that you fix everything for us because we understand your ways are higher than ours. But my request, God, is that you do a work in our hearts even in the middle of those years. And notice the, 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 my favorite phrase, I think, of the, of the whole book. Actually, that'll probably change as we study it. It just keeps changing every 10 minutes. But for right now, my favorite phrase is that, in wrath, remember mercy. What is Habakkuk doing? Habakkuk, remember, he's been changed because he's seen God's nature and he has remembered God's character. And what is God? God is righteous and holy, but he's also loving. And Habakkuk is not asking God to change who he is or be something that he is not. Habakkuk recognizes, God, you're righteous. You deserve and have the complete autonomy to carry out your wrath. But God, you're loving. So we're asking you to remember mercy. And while your wrath is poured out and we're carried away to Babylon, give mercy in that you still keep a real relationship with us. That's what God through Jeremiah kept saying to his people over and over and over. Forget the political alliances that you're trying to make with these nations. Come back to a relationship with me. And it's exactly what Habakkuk prays for. He says, God, in the midst of all this mess, just let me know you. That's the mercy that he's asking for. And it's what we should ask for as well in our world today. Though the world turns in turmoil, God in wrath, remember mercy. And then he makes this statement, this bold remembrance. And you see that in verses 3 through 15. And first, you see, first four or five verses, he, he shows that God's might is displayed. He recalls times where God's power is displayed. Then in verses 8 through 15, he recalls times where God just consistently had victory and did his way and his will. And so let's glance at those, if you would. And I gave you some blanks there to kind of, we're going to translate the poetry, if you would. Okay, so, so he's speaking in vo- very, very poetic phrasing, uh, extremely so. But it's under God's inspiration. It's given for our uh, learning and for our changing our admonition. And so we're going to look at it. And just like in old English class, and no, don't nobody roll your eyes because we have some English teachers in the congregation and different things. So nobody roll your eyes. But in English class, they take the poem and sometimes or the story and you have, here's what it says, now write out what it means. I'm like, well, why didn't they do that to begin with? Why didn't they just say what they meant? Well, here's, let's look at what he says. We're going to just walk it verse by verse. Look first in verse 3 and 4. He says in Mount, verse 3, God came from Timon, a holy one from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and and there was hiding of his power. He said, well, what does he mean? The, the two places give us a clue, Temen and Mount Paran. There's actually, Temen is mentioned several different times in Scripture. It's the grandson of Esau, and uh, it, there's a land that's eventually named after him. There's others that come that are Temenites. And if you look, the, the region, both of these places, they are south and east of Israel, of the land of Israel. They're both southeast, and they're toward the Sinai Peninsula. Now, what happened 
at Sinai. You want to remember? God gave his law. It's where God gave his word to his people after he rescued them from Egypt. So he brings them through the Red Sea in rescue. You're going to see that being reminded a lot. He brings them through the Red Sea. And then he takes them to Mount Sinai and he gives his word and he makes a covenant with his people. And he references these two places. He says that they shook, you know, God's force. What do we have? We have the pillar of fire or the, the cloud that followed behind them and that guided them. You have God's presence that encompassed Mount Sinai as he gave the law that says that the ground and the earth shook like a storm and it's just God's power. Well, what is he referencing here? As you think about it being from the south and the east, it could be a couple of different things that they would have pictured. The sun comes from that way and dispels the darkness for them. But also, if you look at it geographically, there's a lot of massive storms that would come through Israel from that particular area. And you see kind of how it's described that God has these horns, it says, in his hands. There was hiding in his power. So it kind of gives you this picture of this thunderstorm that sweeps up on you. It gives you this idea of his power where, though it, at a distance it doesn't look that great, but the closer it gets, all of a sudden it encompasses you like it wrapped around Moses at Sinai. And so he's reminding them, don't you remember when God set us free with power when we thought we were trapped by Egypt and God set us free in a way we didn't expect? Then he gave us his law and he swept through that wilderness and with power he ruled and reigned over us. Then in verse number five, he calls them even further back. Notice he says, and, but before him went the pestilence and burning coals went forth at his feet. That word burning coals literally means fervent heat. It's actually kind of a colloquial phrase that they would have used to describe fever and, and plague. And so he says there was pestilence. There was this burning. There, he's referring to disease or he's referring, he's in control of all of these things. How did God ever use those things to free his people? In Egypt, the plagues, the pestilence. The, the, the fever, the sickness, the boils that God used to, to bring Pharaoh's heart to a place that he would let his people go. That's all that Habakkuk is doing is just reminding them, God has set us free before and he will do it again. Verse number six, it says he's immense, that he covers the sea. says he stood and he measured the earth. That's a pretty big picture is what he's saying. We are, he says, we are, small we're a little nation and compared to the whole globe god can measure the globe it says he stands and he's bigger than all these things i beheld and drove asunder the nations the everlasting mountains were scattered the perpetual hills did bow his ways everlasting he's giving a picture here of when the people went into canaan he says at what point can you remember where god started driving people out miraculously where god gave his people victory and established a home and a place for them when he drove out Canaanites and Philistines in miraculous battles like Jericho and Ai and the people, it says, fled. When David chased away the Philistines with just a few men, when God's, uh, when God's angel came and dispelled the army of Assyria in a miraculous way, he says, God can defend his own. And that beautiful picture where he's talking about the mountains and the hills bow before him. When you get into Jerusalem is the way that they would have entered the promised land. As you come up to the, the area where Jerusalem, Bethlehem are, there, if you have a map in your Bible, you can look at it sometime if it shows the kind of the topography. There's this strip of mountains right up the middle of Israel. 
And if you ever look at pictures of it online or if you've ever been there, it's just hill after hill. They seem to just never end. And they're jagged, almost violent hills that are difficult to climb. And so when Israel first got to this land, it's like every time we go over one hill, there's another enemy. And whenever we go over this mountain, there's another mountain. When are we going to get there? The Philistine Valley is where all the fruitful land was. And further north in Galilee, where they ended up establishing all their agriculture, he said, we're never going to get into those places. But God miraculously made those mountains, if you would, to bow before them. And he gave the people the land that he promised. Verse 7, he references, he says, I saw the tents of Cushan and the curtains of the land of Midian. Both of those refer, again, to a place in near the Red Sea, particularly right near the edge of the Red Sea in the Sinai Peninsula. And so he's referencing back to their crossing of the sea. You say, how do, they, how do you know that? Notice the next verse. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was the, thy wrath against the sea? You know, what bodies of water did God use to free his people? He used the Nile River with a plague. On a couple occasions, he, he uses the Nile River to let his people go. He splits open the Red Sea. He later lets them cross across the Jordan, and he makes his covenant and his promise there with them. And he says, did God do those miraculous works because he was angry with the rivers or he had wrath against the sea? No, he did that to display himself to his people and to set them free. Notice the description. He says at the end of verse 8, with the wrath against the sea, that thou didst ride thine horses and thy chariots of salvation. Remember, Pharaoh's coming with his chariots to destroy all of Israel, and he's riding up behind them, and he's giving this picture that God splits the sea open in his wrath, but also in his deliverance. His deliverance in that Israel crosses through, but his wrath in that like chariots and like an army, the sea plunges back across Egypt and against, against Pharaoh and his armies, and they're utterly destroyed. God said, what, would I do, what did I do that for? To display that I can free you, that I have power. Notice verse 9. It says, thy bow was made quite naked. It's a very uh, poetic way of saying he shot the arrow. There was, nothing, there was no arrow in the bow. He let it go, meaning the Lord fought for us. According to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word, thou didst cleave the earth with rivers, meaning the floods. And then you see in verse 10, the mountains saw thee, they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted up its hands. Another, it's a poetic way of speaking of a flood. When the deep, the ocean, lifted its hands up toward the Lord. What is it? It's the rising of a flood. And you have some blanks there. Think of these things that God is reminding them of. When did God use earthquakes or floods or oceans? When did he make, verse 11, the sun and the moon stood still in their habitation? When did he do that? For Joshua at Gibeon, he says, I, made this, I literally made the sun and the moon stand still to give you victory. I changed the course of the universe. He goes on and he says, The light of thine arrows they went, uh, excuse me, at the light of thine arrows they went, and the shining of thy glittering spear. He says, you, you control even the very elements of nature for us. You brought darkness on Egypt. You made the sun cease to shine to set us free. You, do, you control even the elements of nature. Verse 12. Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heaven, heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for the salvation of thine anoint, uh, with thine anointed. Thou wounded the, heads of the, the head of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation to the neck. He's 
it's a very kind of gruesome, descriptive term. He says, our enemies, you have laid them open from their feet to their head. They are laid bare, utterly destroyed. There is no doubt they have been defeated. But notice that description. He says, you've struck them even in the house of their leader at the head. Where had God done that before? With Pharaoh's son. He comes in. Ultimately, that's how he sets his people free from Egypt. With different kings throughout the history of Israel that they were coming against. And he cast them down one after the next, even in miraculous ways. That's all Habakkuk is doing. Is he's just going back and saying, God, now that I think about it, we've been in this case before. <laughs> we have been under turmoil and stress. We have been held captive. We have been unable to defeat our enemies. And every time, you set us free. So why would it be any different now? Every time you prove your power. And he closes in verse 15. Now let's walk through the sea with thine horses, through the heap of great waters. And notice his response in verse 16. When I think about this, he says, when I heard this, again, poetic language, he's saying, when I think about all the things I've just described, I'm weak inside. I tremble and I quiver to know that you have thought of us in this way. That the God who splits the oceans open, that the God who make, can make mountains fall, that the God who drives his enemies scattering has chosen his anointed ones, his people, to bestow his blessing and grace upon them. Because God, now that I think, think about what Habakkuk is thinking, now that I think about it, you could destroy us. You owe us nothing. And yet you continually set us free. And he says, and when I think about that, I tremble. I think about what you will do one day when you will set us free again. And then notice verse 17. Notice his determination to rejoice as we close. Notice. So. Here's what he's saying. And, and notice the dramatic comparison. Notice, notice what he's talking about. A fig tree, fruit, an olive tree, fields, sheep, and oxen. That's what he describes. So think about what he's just talked about. Oceans, mountains, sun and moon standing still, earthquakes, fire, rampant disease. God has used all of these things to set his people free. And so I'm not going to complain when there's nothing left on the tree. <laughs> I'm not going to complain about sheep and cows because God is far more mighty than that. He says, so even though and even when life isn't exactly the way I want it, verse 17, even when, there's, when I don't have everything in the fold that I desire, when life is not all that I expect and want, when my health is not what it, I want it to be, when my family, when there's, when there's relationship issues, when there's problems, when I experience loss and grief and pain, when I... When I I don't have what I think I want or what I need. Even in those moments, verse number 18, yet <coughs> I will rejoice in the Lord and I will joy in the God of my salvation. And see, so he doesn't say, I will watch the news even more. I will read more articles and be more informed, though those are fine and they're important. He doesn't say, I will stay up to date on everything that's wrong in the world. I will think through all those things and then praise you. No, he says, when I think about you, 
He says, I have spent so much time thinking about the state of God's people and the state of everything around us that I have forgotten how great God is. And he says, I'm going to get back to that. So that even when the things around me quake, I rejoice and find joy in the Lord. Notice verse 19, this renewed strength. Because the Lord God is my strength, not my stuff, not my life. Notice it says God's response to Habakkuk's perplexities not only promised divine wrath against evil, but also provided assurance of God's divine favor and hope to his children. He says, look, God has consistently defeated his enemies. And though we have complained about how he's handled us, Israel, he has consistently blessed his people over and over again. And one day is promised that his enemies will be ultimately defeated and his people will be eternally blessed. And so, while we wait for that, we'll rejoice and we'll find strength in him. Verse 19, And he will make my feet like hind's feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places. Hind's feet is, simply means he's referring to it. It's another name for a deer and he's, or a goat or, or something that might live in that area, a, a deer-like creature, kind of all in a group that can walk along the mountains. Dangerous, difficult paths. Mountains are beautiful. Have you ever noticed that? Mountains are beautiful to look at. They're hard to walk on, most of them. I enjoy hiking, and I enjoy going, and I know that some of you do too, I enjoy going hiking and, and traversing those things. But it's not easy, like, especially when you get to certain points and you've you're got river crossings and boulders that you got to go around and... I went hunting a couple weeks ago up in the National Forest, and there's some places that it is thick, and it is hard to walk. And I'm looking around, and you know, I'm there to find deer, and, and they move through the mountains way easier than I do. In fact, I was sitting there thinking about this passage. I thought, this would be so much easier if I didn't have to walk two miles in here, and it take me two hours because of all the... Well, what is he saying here? He's saying, we traipse through and can't do this on our own. But with God's strength, we will navigate difficult circumstances in life like a deer that can move through easily. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy for us, but it does mean that God will provide. And he finishes with that phrase. And notice, I don't want to miss the last phrase. It's not just something he just says for fun. Notice, he says, to the chief singer upon stringed instruments. Remember we said the chief singer, the lead singer for the choir, the one that tells everyone else. What is he saying? When he senses that God, whew, this is who God is. This is amazing. So this is, look at all that he has done for us. Look at what he has promised he will do for us. Let's rejoice and praise him while we wait. And then here's his invitation. You all come do that with me. And in the heart of a Christian that has moved this way, when God convicts us of sin and he shows us himself, it will push us to worship. But it will also lead us to encourage others to do the same. And so I wonder, what, is our, what are our conversations like with other Christians? What do we talk most about? We have a God, as amazing as all the things that he did for Israel in this chapter are, and you can 
write them out, the splitting of the sea, the quaking, the earthquakes, the floods, the oceans, the battles, the threshing of his enemy, and all of these things. Far more amazing than that is that God himself, Emmanuel, God, came to be with us. And he gave himself a sinless, perfect sacrifice on our behalf. And he has redeemed us by his blood and death. And he has given us life through his own resurrection. That is far greater than any battle that has ever been won. And it should be the prominent thing in our mind as we wait for God rather than being distracted by everything else in our life that we think is not the way that it should be, we wait for God knowing what He has done and praying for what He will do. So let's ask Him to help us do that. Father, we love You and we praise You. This is a good word for us and to us tonight. We're thankful for this song. It's it's beautifully written, but it is boldly declared in our lives. And so we ask that you would do what you did in Habakkuk, we ask you to do for us. In the midst of these years that we wait, as we wait to see our salvation completed as our eyes gaze on you, may we look to you always. And may we find rejoicing and renewed strength in you. Forgive us of our failings and drive us close to you in your precious name. Amen. Before we dismiss tonight if you would take a look at your lesson or the back of your lesson sheet tonight your prayer requests and a number of things to draw your attention to and then uh, for tonight we'll we'll pray together as families and couples for a few minutes and um, if you're not sitting with somebody if there's a friend near you slide over and pray with them this evening i left you some space there at the top i don't know that we have time to do it tonight if you have time at the end of your prayer But that space there at the top is to write in your own Habakkuk 3. He writes out all the things that God has done in the life of Israel. And and that's there for you to write out what God has done for you personally throughout the years. Something to look back on and praise Him for. So do that this evening. And then also you see as well ways you can pray for our church. Two families that we're continuing to pray for. um, Miss Dowdy's funeral this week and Brother Dorsey's next week. And we're praying for both of those families. If you would pray for Mary Jackson as well. She had a, a fall a couple weeks ago. She's at home recovering. She actually she has a broken vertebrae. So if you would uh, be in prayer for her. They think six to eight weeks is what they were expecting for uh, for her recovery. If you can send her a card or a note to encourage her, then do that. You can get her address from the office if you'd like to send something to encourage her. I think that'd be good. Uh, Mrs. Watson and then others that we've had. Um, Earl Sharon, you see there at the bottom, has been moved to hospice care. And they've been called him back and forth to the hospital the last few weeks. And so if you would pray for Gail as those decisions have been made. Um, and just pray for their family at this time. I went over to see him yesterday at the hospital. And um, he's still encouraging. You know, he's battling dementia and a number of different things. But he's, he's still encouraging in a, in a positive outlook and a sweet spirit. So if you would pray for Brother Earl and his family and actually i was leaving and walking out and um didn't realize that in the room right next to him peggy wharton was there and so i left and went out and then gail said did you know peggy's in the room right next to earl i said nope so i went back in and i went and saw her and you know she was sick a couple weeks ago and she's still dealing with some things they've sent her home since then she's got some fluid 
retention and, and some shortness of breath. And so if you would um, pray, she's following up with a couple doctors. Then we're praying for Jack coming home this week. Lori's going to get him on Friday, coming home from his missions trip to Finland. And then Rob is also over there, but in a different country. Uh, Rob has had the opportunity to go with his parents. This is a trip that's been delayed several times with uh, the last couple of years for different things. But uh, he's with his parents touring in uh, it, uh, in Europe throughout different places. So they're kind of going to pass each other but never see each other. And he'll be coming home next week as well. So if you would pray for both of them while they travel. And uh, share a request or a praise there as a family. And then let's spend uh, three or four minutes together in prayer. We won't break up into groups tonight, but just there as a family or as a couple. Uh, you can pray over uh, this list and then other needs and, and praising the Lord for what He's done in our lives. And then we'll come back and be dismissed in just a moment.